Welcome to the Industries in Motion podcast from RBC Capital Markets, where we'll be exploring what's new and what's next in today's fast-moving markets and industries to help you stay ahead of the curve. Please listen to the end of this podcast for important disclaimers. My name is Mark Odendahl, and I am the head of U.S. Capital Markets Research. Let's get into today's episode. I'm joined today by Gerard Cassidy. Gerard is RBC's bank strategist, as well as covers large cap banks. Gerard has been here for nearly three decades. Gerard is also the president and on the board of directors of BAB. BAB is the Bank Analysts Association of Boston. And it's also interesting to know that back in the 90s, Gerard is the creator of the Texas Ratio. It's a ratio used by investors to determine whether a bank could be insolvent or not. Gerard, welcome to the podcast. Mark, it's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Over the last 18 months, we've had a bank cycle. How does that compare to the cycles that you've seen over your 30-year career? Mark, this, this last cycle is unprecedented due to the activities and actions by the Federal Reserve and our U.S. federal government. When you compare this cycle to the prior cycles, I went through the 1989-1990 cycle, the 0102 cycle, and of course, the one we all remember, the 0809 cycle. And in those cycles, the bank stocks were devastated due to rapid credit deterioration. Normally, you get credit deterioration when the economy goes into a recession. So last year, as the economy plummeted, the actions by the Federal Reserve and the federal government were extraordinary. As we all recall, the federal government pumped in trillions of dollars into the economy, and the Federal Reserve opened up its balance sheet to an unprecedented level. The outcomes of those actions was that the banks avoided a credit cycle. The industry prepared for the credit losses at the start of last year by building up their loan loss reserves. And in doing so, they damaged, of course, earnings in 2020. But as they discovered, as the year progressed and the economy came back so rapidly due to the federal government and Federal Reserve actions, the banks avoided the credit cycle, which is, again, unprecedented going back even years before I even started covering the industry. So this one really was quite different than any other downturns we've experienced in my career over the last 30 plus years. And now as we look forward, we think the outlook is actually quite positive for the banks. You mentioned the industry avoided a credit cycle. Going forward, what do you think the drivers will be for shareholder returns? It's going to be interesting because the recovery in earnings kicking off in 2021 have been driven by what we refer to as loan loss reserve releases. Once again, the industry set aside billions of dollars to handle the expected credit losses from the recession in 2020 and didn't need to use them. So now they're putting them back into earnings and earnings have been quite strong through the first six months of 2021. But we all know the earnings releases are almost one time in nature and they're going to fade away as we enter into 2022. So it's going to come back to core fundamentals for the banking industry. And the two biggest drivers for fundamental growth to drive shareholder value over the next 18 to 24 months will come from loan growth and a steepening of the yield curve. These factors obviously have always been there for the banks and have always recovered after those cycles that we've been through over the last 30 years. So we expect 
loan growth to come back. And we also expect to see a benefit or a tailwind from a better interest rate environment that we anticipate over the next 12 to 18 months. You've talked about a steepening yield curve and the possibility of higher short-term interest rates. You've also discussed this in a recent note that you published about interest rate sensitivity analysis around the top banks in the U.S. What does the report tell investors about the future profitability of the banks? Mark, interest rates are very important to the profitability of the banking industry. It's the cost of their raw material, which is cash. And when you take a look at the current rate environment, the rates are very low and banks are less profitable in a lower rate environment with a flatter yield curve. Therefore, a steepening curve would add to their profitability. Now, as you may know, the long end of the curve is affected by a number of different factors, but most importantly, it's being impacted by the Federal Reserve's policy, their monetary policy of quantitative easing. And essentially what that is, is they're coming into the markets every month buying $120 billion of securities, 80 billion of governments and 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. This is obviously creating excess demand, you could argue artificial demand. And as we all know, when demand exceeds supply, rates come down. We anticipate that at some point in the future, the Fed will start to taper. And what does that mean is that they'll scale back those $120 billion purchases to eventually zero. They've done this once before following the financial crisis. The expectation is that when the tapering ends or during the tapering period, actually, long-term interest rates will start to rise. Should this take place, that will help benefit the bank's net interest margin, which is equivalent to a gross profit margin for an industrial company. So as the net interest margin rises due to a steepening curve, that will increase the revenue growth for the banks. And so we view this favorably and we anticipate that if the long end of the curve over the next six to nine months increases to one and three quarters to 2%, you're likely to see a better margin for the industry, which will help their profitability. Now, banks are asset sensitive. And what is what that means is that their balance sheet will reprice, the assets on their balance sheet will reprice faster than their funding costs. So in a rising rate environment through a steepening curve, you'll see better revenues coming from the banks as those assets reprice. So think about it this way. All banks, of course, have securities portfolios. Every month, cash flows come out of that portfolio. Those cash flows will be reinvested at higher rates in a steepening curve. Also, loans and other securities purchased will also have higher yields, which will again benefit this net interest margin. What do you tell investors on helping navigate the banks as it relates to as interest rates move up? When is it time to further invest in the banks or when is it time to take profits? That's a, a really critical question because when we look at interest rates, not only do we need to keep an eye on the steepening of the curve taking place through the long end of the curve moving up, but we also have to take a look at what's happening at the front end of the curve, which is directly controlled by the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. As you know, Fed fund rates are at essentially 0% today, which is the front end of the curve. And what we anticipate is that should the economy continue to grow as forecast by many economists, it's likely that the Fed will move on short-term interest rates. In fact, the Fed's own policy has indicated they could raise rates as early as 2023. Some forecasters think it may come in the second half of 2022. If this does take place, 
the last two tightening cycles are a good guide on how investors should invest in bank stocks. In the 05 to 07 tightening cycle and the 2016 to 18 tightening cycle, what you saw was in those tightening cycles, bank stocks clearly outperformed the market. So in a rise in the short term end of the curve through Fed fund rates going higher, bank stocks should perform quite well. It's our estimate that you want to own the bank stocks probably through three or four Fed fund rate increases. And then at that point, start to trim the stocks due to the fact that they tend to uh, run out of gas. But boy, when the Fed starts to raise short-term interest rates, that would be quite positive for the bank stocks. So keeping all that in mind, how do you think of loan growth here? Market is the number one question investors are asking us about the future of banking because the loan growth has not been positive and has actually been negative. But when you look back at past cycles, this loan issue that we're seeing today is not unusual. And it takes some time for borrowers to start borrowing again, whether it's corporates or individuals. Now, according to the Federal Reserve data that comes out every Friday afternoon called the H8 data, the consumer loan growth has already picked up this year. So consumers are back borrowing. You're seeing it, of course, in auto loans. We're starting to finally see some credit card receivable growth, which, of course, is very positive. The corporates and the commercial customers have yet to come back. And part of the reason is that there's a lot of liquidity on the corporate's balance sheets today. Now, the liquidity is coming down, which is a good sign. There's also uncertainty about the future economic outlook. But the biggest I think headwind for commercial loan growth is the very low levels of inventories in this country. We all know about the supply chain issues. Everybody sees it when they drive by their local car dealership and you look at the parking lot, it's half empty. It's not just automobiles where there's a, a shortage. It's everywhere. So as the, as the inventories rebuild, we anticipate not only will companies be borrowing for capital expenditures to build out plant and equipment, but to restock inventories. And if you look at the past two cycles, commercial loans are the last sector of the loan portfolio that does come back, but they do come back. So we anticipate as the economy grows through the end of 22, supply chain issues are ironed out and capital expenditures pick up. The banks will benefit not only from the consumer loan growth we're already seeing, but they're going to benefit from commercial loan growth over the next 12 to 18 months. Keeping in mind what you said about rates, and then what you also said about loan growth, what type of banks are going to do well in this environment? I think it's going to be a varied benefit depending on the bank's exposure to the different loan categories. So our so-called universal banks, those are our money center banks. These banks have a very diverse portfolio. They're very big consumer lenders, the credit cards, automobile loans, personal loans, all of this would benefit, of course, in a stronger economy. So the universal banks benefit not only from the consumer loan growth, but also for the corporate and commercial loan growth. Now, the universal banks also have to fight the competition of the shadow banking industry, which is essentially the capital markets. So the capital markets are very, very robust. In fact, the DCM debt capital markets had a record year last year in issuing paper. And so I would suggest that the universal banks will benefit. They may not receive as much benefit on the commercial side as the regional banks, but they certainly will benefit in the commercial area, but also the consumer area. Now, on the regional side, this is where the commercial benefit will be the best, 
because the regional banks customers generally don't have as much access to the capital markets. And these regional banks will benefit as the economy comes back, particularly, as you know, as the recent Census Bureau indicated, the real growth in this country is in the Southwest and Southeastern parts of this country. And so the banks that have presence there will probably see a bigger benefit from growth than the banks that are in the upper Midwest or in the Northeastern part of the United States. So you just went over several positives for the banks. What are some of the risks to this bullish outlook? There's always risks, as, as we know, uh, as we saw with the start of the pandemic, which came out of left field for all investors. And so the biggest risk we foresee on the horizon is that this inflation issue is not transitory. And it is not only persistent, but it starts to accelerate from where we are today. If that was to happen, the Fed would probably have to move more aggressively. And again, initially, when the Fed starts to raise Fed fund rates, we have seen in the last two cycles, the 05 to 07 cycle, and then more recently in the 2016 to 2018 cycle, during those tightening cycles, the bank stocks did very well for the first three or four Fed fund rate increases. And we expect that to be the case again today. However, if the Fed has to be more aggressive and doesn't raise rates in a very methodical fashion of 25 basis points every meeting, but they move at a 50 or 75 basis point increase, or they raise rates intra-meeting, which happened back in the 1970s and 80s, that would be uh, problematic for the banks. So the one big risk we see on the horizon is that inflation gets out of control. It's not the base forecast, but that is the, the risk forecast. Another risk, of course, not that we see this either, is should an unexpected recession arrive, that would be another issue. And though we didn't have the credit cycle in the last recession, there's always that risk that that credit cycle could come back and could come back stronger because we avoided one in the last recession. What are some of the lasting impacts of the pandemic on the bank industry? That's an interesting question because some of the trends that had already started were accelerated during the pandemic. And probably the most lasting impact is the adoption of digital use by customers at banks. As we all know, the banking industry started with internet banking back in 2001, but it really didn't take off until the introduction in 2008, 2009 of the iPhone. Since that time, digital banking has really taken off. And as many of us know, as consumers of banks, we all use the access to our own personal accounts through the phone. And because of the pandemic and due to the closures of branches and the stay-at-home orders, Many people who were reluctant to move into the digital channel were forced to. So the adoption rates moved up quite meaningfully. And in fact, Zelle, which is the P2P transfer mechanism, has now surpassed Venmo as the largest mover of money between consumers. And Zelle, which is, again, the bank product, was introduced in 2017 and has quickly become the dominant transfer mechanism between consumers. And so when we go forward, I think you're going to see an expansion of the digital channel. Banks are investing heavily here. They're combating the fintech companies who have a very narrow focus, are very good, but they just don't offer the breadth of products through the digital channel, which gives the commercial banks the advantage over the fintechs. So that investment in digital 
and other investments needed to compete. How is that driving M&A in the banking sector? It's important and it has been a factor, no doubt about it. Since I've started covering the banks, we had at the beginning of my career over 18,000 banks in the United States. Today, we're down to about 5,100. And so the consolidation over the last three decades has been immense and it continues today. Economies of scale has always been important for banking and even more so today because of the technological demands that the banks are confronted with to offer these products through the digital channel. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to see our banking industry in 10 or 15, 20 years from now have five or six banks. We do expect to see amongst the top 20 or 30 banks much more consolidation over the next 10 years. But in the end, we still have thousands of community banks in this country that are not publicly traded, privately owned. In some parts of the country, we have what they call mutual savings banks, which are owned by the depositors. But amongst the publicly traded banks, and to your point, I think this technology demand is going to be one of the catalysts to drive more consolidation. In fact, it was one of the biggest catalysts for one of the biggest mergers we've seen in the history of banking when SunTrust Banks and BB&T merged or announced their merger back in February of 2019. So this technology demand is real. It's not going away. It's only getting bigger, which over time will be one of the catalysts to drive this consolidation further over the next five to 10 years. What other threats can you discuss to the traditional banking model? I guess the biggest threat to the traditional banking model is the invitation or the biggest technology companies choosing to become bank holding companies. That's not likely, but there's always that possibility. And to obtain a banking charter as a non-bank, you need to create a bank holding company. And so the laws would have to change to allow this to happen. Also, the technology companies would have to see their multiples collapse ahead of time so that absorbing or becoming a bank would not drag down their multiples. I don't foresee that happening anytime soon. Now, the other threat is more regulation. Under the new administration, they're much more focused on bank regulation than under the past, uh, under the Trump administration. And so that would probably be the more immediate threat is that this administration focuses more on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issuing more regulation to regulate the banks. So that would be the near-term threat. And when I say threat, it's not a threat that would derail the banking system. We're not going to see new regulation like we saw coming out of the financial crisis when we had the Dodd-Frank bill introduced, which really transformed the industry. Um, But there could be around the edges anticipated more regulation from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as they try to level the playing field for customers of banks. Gerard, thank you very much. This has been a terrific rundown of the banking industry. It shows your decades of experience. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. What else lies ahead in today's ever-evolving markets and industries? We'll be keeping track right here on Industries in Motion. 
Until then, thank you for joining us on today's episode. Make sure you subscribe to Industries in Motion wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to continue this conversation or are interested in more information, please contact your RBC representative directly or visit our website, which is www.rbccm.com backslash industries in motion for more insights. Thank you. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.